Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah, the first chapter. Isaiah chapter 1. We are reviewing what we believe about the doctrine of salvation, and we're doing so by asking questions of Mr. Arminian. Arminian theology and soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, has swept the world and is now coming home to roost as methods are more and more depraved every year in their mad rush to supposedly save the lost at any cost. Their theology is weak, their God's a beggar, their Christ is a loser, their methods are ridiculous, and we want to expose them, we want to comfort ourselves, we want to establish ourselves in the Word of God by what the Bible teaches us, where we stand established in the truth of the gospel. We just sang, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Without a proper understanding of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, those in hell have every right to sing that song as much as those in heaven based on Arminian theology because Jesus died for them as much as He died for those in heaven. And that's absurd. That is that Jesus died equally for the goats as well as the sheep. That's absurd. That means that Jesus died for those the Father didn't give Him as much as those the Father did give Him. That's absurd. And that's why we're having this study, is to reestablish and review our doctrine for the sake of our younger members, for ourselves, as we return to Romans chapter 10 very soon. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, the Lord God said, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. So we're going to do some reasoning in God's Word. If you turn over to Isaiah 41 and verse 21, the same Lord God said this, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. He asks men to bring forth their reasons because his doctrine is reasonable. Our God is perfectly logical, perfectly consistent. His truth may be reasoned. His truth may be alleged. His truth may be argued. The apostle Paul would tell us that his manner of preaching is described this way. Luke recorded this in Acts 17 and verse 2, that three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. To reason with somebody is to produce arguments to prove a point that you're making. And here is the description of his reasoning. Opening, that's opening statements, and alleging, that's arguments, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. The true gospel is not a feel-good, fuzzy-wuzzy, vague, warm idea of men. It is absolute truth presented clearly and plainly in God's Word. And when we lay hold of it by faith and we understand it by reason, we then get the feelings of appreciation and thanksgiving to God, and we have our love provoked, and we are constrained to serve Him who gave Himself for us. I don't know how Paul would be constrained if the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for those that were in hell. 
How would that constrain him? But he was very constrained in his life. When we turn a few pages and look at Romans chapter 3, and we're thinking about questions as part of logical reasoning, rhetorical questions, provocative questions. When we look at Romans 3, here's an example of the apostle. What advantage then hath the Jew? Question mark. Or what profit is there of circumcision? Question mark. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Question mark. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Question mark. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Question mark. Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Question mark. God forbid in verse 6, for then how shall God judge the world? Question mark. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Question mark. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Question mark. Whose damnation is just. Period. So the Bible shows us that we ought to be able to take our doctrine and reason from it, and reason in it, and reason through it, to convince and to persuade men of the truth of our form of doctrine. The apostle did it, and the Lord God called men to do it. It is a blessing to know that our religion is purely logical, perfectly consistent, and may be argued and reasoned. You will not be able to catch it coming and going. You will not be able to take it to a logical conclusion and find out that it's absurd. Right. Arminians, because they don't know their theology nor ours, will ask foolish questions like, well, when did man ever have a chance? Well, we know the answer to that. Amen. And as I go through these questions, it is not simply to mock those who are not here. It is to help those who may not yet be persuaded of the truth that are listening to this elsewhere. It's to have you be able to answer the questions in your mind. You should know the answers already to these questions. We have answers to them. And if Arminians could ask good questions, we'd answer them from the Bible. But all they can do is raise emotional issues and raise one or two Bible verses that they don't understand that we have to re-explain to them. But we should do much better than that. If you're asked a reason of the hope that is within you, I hope that you can give one in meekness and in godly fear. Amen. But notice, when you're asked about your hope, hopefully someone will ask you a reason of your hope. Not a feeling of your hope. Not, it's not good enough to say, I'm just so happy in Jesus today. Right. Lots of people are saying that today. I watched one last night. I almost wanted to bring a 10-minute video clip of a long-haired hermaphrodite trying to defend against Psalm 5-5. It was hilarious. All he could say over and over again with his effeminate smile, God loves you. God loves you so much. God just loves you. You're the best. On and on. In answer to, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Deal with it. Psalm 5.5. We can deal with it. God hates all workers of iniquity that are outside Christ. Inside Christ, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. 
Does that sound like a worker of iniquity? And without blame, does that sound like a worker of iniquity? I need two more words to finish Ephesians 1.4. In love. What a glorious doctrine. I'll tell you something you can count on. If God loves you, you'll never be separated from that love. Period. Because that's what the Bible teaches. We don't do this very often, what I'm doing in pursuing this particular course. And if it sounds sarcastic, some sarcasm is intended. If I sound angry, some anger is intended because I am. If you read much or listen to much about Arminian theology and Arminian methods, you should get angry. The Apostle Paul, when he was in the city of Athens, it said his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. My spirit gets stirred within me when I see the entirety of Christianity, for the most part, given over to this Arminian, man-supreme, man-sovereign theology. Lord, help us. Have mercy upon us. Let's think briefly about the sovereignty of God. We just sang a few minutes ago that our Father is sovereign, and we worshiped Him for His sovereign government of the world. Arminians typically believe, they declare that God is sovereign, and they pray as if He were sovereign. I've never understood why an Arminian prays for God to save anyone. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because God is already doing all that He can do for every one of them. And yet they pray like they're us. Trusting in the sovereignty of God. Why pray for the lost? Well, because Paul did. Paul did because he had a different theology than yours, and he was praying for a different salvation than you're praying. Why do you pray for the lost? God loves them all equally. Christ died for them all equally. And the Holy Spirit is convicting, wooing, drawing, whatever they want to say, all equally. Why are you praying? Are you asking God to give 110% when He's only been giving 100? Are you asking God to work overtime and not quit at the, 40, at the end of a 40-hour work week? Listen, the questions could be multiplied indefinitely. And I've probably gone longer than I should have. But once you get started, it's hard to stop. My first question about the sovereignty of God. The the Arminians will declare Him sovereign. They'll pray as if He were sovereign, even over the souls of men. But in practical application, they deny Him the desire, the right, or the power to overrule men and save them by His grace. First question you should ask when you're considering the sovereignty of God to an Arminian, can God fail? Just ask him, can God fail? And remind him to be cautious and consistent with his answer, remembering that his God has a burden for all men and to save them all. Can God fail? Just get them out there on the limb a little ways. Come on. You want them out there a little ways on a limb. Can God fail? We know the answer to that. And remember, I don't have time to stop and explain our answer to all these questions because you should already know what the purpose of this series is to remind you of things we know so when we go to Romans 10, I don't have to remind you there and get lost. I want to deal with the text based on your understanding of the truth. Can God fail? We know the answer is no. Does God fail? You know, if he's an honest Arminian, he'll say, yes, God fails. 
Because God loved and tried to save and Christ died to save and the Holy Spirit convicted to save and yet couldn't and didn't in the vast majority of cases. Only if they're consistent will they admit it. Because to admit it is to deny God. Because we know and they know intuitively God cannot fail. Why would God ever fail? Is it because He cannot or will not ever override the will of sinners? How is God sovereign in your scheme, Mr. Arminian, since He cannot or will not choose to save sinners that He loves? Remember, we're wanting to lead this man to come to a conclusion. How is God sovereign in your scheme since He cannot or will not choose to save sinners over their will? Because He can't. And if He can't, then man is sovereign in his will over the will of God. Even though the Bible, when it's dealing with salvation, speaks only of one will. Well, that is one will that can do anything. It does speak of the will of man being unable to do anything and at rebellion against God. But it's the will of God. How is your God sovereign if he cannot save them against their will and he loses most that he tried to save? He has failed. And so we can ask questions along those lines. Since our presidents can pardon without a substitute, why cannot your God pardon with a substitute? Does it require the will of a criminal to be pardoned? No. All it takes is a presidential signature or a gubernatorial signature, and he's pardoned. The juice isn't going to be turned on in the electric chair. He's not going to be electrocuted. You say, well, he might just stay in his cell and keep eating the three meals there a day to wear the pretty pajamas. <laughs> he still didn't die. He was still pardoned. He still did not pay the price for his sins. See, one of their arguments will be that Jesus Christ made salvation possible by his death, but it is not effective to anyone until it is appropriated or received when you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. You know, none of that is taught in the Bible anywhere. You can't find accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, inviting Him into your heart, or appropriating any such thing. Right. He either saved or He didn't. He said it is finished, and either it's finished or it's not. A president can pardon. All he has to do is sign a piece of paper saying, this man does not pay what was judicially determined he should pay. And we ask the Arminian, why can a president or a governor pardon without a substitute, but God, who has a substitute, cannot pardon without the criminal cooperating in the matter? Lord, have mercy upon us. Thank you for your truth, Lord. I love your truth. If you don't like the charge, your God cannot pardon with a substitute, is it because He will not? And if He will not, who will against Him? And so man ends up being sovereign. Is God omniscient? Good question always to ask an Arminian. Is God omniscient? Get them, get them committed to the fact that their God and their understanding of the nature of God is that He does have the attribute of omniscience, or all knowledge. He knows everything before it ever occurs. 
If God wants to save all men, Mr. Arminian, did he know beforehand how incredibly unsuccessful he was going to be? Did he know that before he created that he was going to be incredibly unsuccessful? What do you want to say, even from an Arminian perspective, about the percentage of the world's population that are actually going to heaven by their definition? Is it 3%? So he's 97% unsuccessful in the plan of redemption? Or do you want to say that 20% of the world is saved by their definition? Of course, their definition varies all over the map. Is he omniscient? Did God know that Adam would sin and damn his race to hell before creating him? If yes, Mr. Arminian, why did he create him? And do you know where they end up? In answer to every one of these questions, do you know where they end up? What we believe. Because we have the answers to all these questions. Right. We wouldn't say that God knew that Adam was going to fall. We would say that God planned Adam was going to fall. God didn't make Adam sin, but he created man for the fall, in order for redemption, in order for his glory. Right. And that's a successful God from beginning to end. Our God wasn't surprised in Eden, except that how long it took Adam and Eve to fall. When they fell the first day that Satan approached them in a five-minute conversation. According to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, what is the reputation of all the inhabitants of the earth in the sight of God? Reputed as nothing. Isn't that a wonderful reputation? Oh, I love that. That puts us where we belong. Do you know that your praise and your singing, O Lord, how great thou art is better when you're down in the dust? The farther the Lord can get you down by His Word, the farther He can exalt you. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He'll exalt you in due time. We want to preach the gospel of the Bible, which puts man in the dust, condemned and guilty, with a polluted, corrupt, wild nature that in all greediness pursues lasciviousness, according to Ephesians 4 and verse 17. And from the depths of despair, and from the hopelessness of condemnation, then the gospel comes with the balm of salvation, and we're thankful, and we praise and rejoice in Him. The Arminian scheme puts all men in an equal plane where they still have a free will, and all they have to do is choose to be gods, and God is bound to save them and to to give them the new birth, and they'll be His children forever. We know that we're incapable of any such thing and that God must save us against our will and by His almighty power or we will not be saved. Where do you get your sense of fairness, Mr. Arminian? Since it is largely your greatest complaint against election. Where do you get the idea that election isn't fair? And you know, from last Lord's Day, all you have to do is open your two eyes, turn around in a 360-degree circle, and look at the people around you and realize God hasn't created any two people equal. There's so much inequality in this world just by a quick visual observation. Who made that difference? And did God ask about those differences? Did anybody cooperate with those differences? I wasn't asked. Were you asked about the differences that God made? There are babies born in this world that will never see their father, that will hardly ever see their mother, and that will starve to death before they're one year old. 
Then there are those that will starve to death before they're five year old. At five years old, they will never have clothes to wear or shoes on their feet. Don't tell me all men are created equal and have the right to li- life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Show me that in reality and show me that from the Bible. God has made enormous differences in the world. And these Arminians think that the only way anyone can get to heaven is by hearing the gospel. Then why has God restrained the gospel from the majority of mankind since creation? Because they get there by Romans chapter 1, they are without excuse. Some Arminians will say, is that the case? Then you mean everyone walking down Main Street in Greenville today that believes there's a God that created the Son is going to go to heaven because he believes that? And they catch themselves coming and going all the time because their doctrine is illogical because it's false. Right. Our doctrine is entirely and perfectly consistent and logical. Thank you, Lord. Do not ever let us misdivide a single verse of Scripture. Do not ever let us allege anything that is not true. Save us, Heavenly Father. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, as our brother read to us from Psalm 119 and verse 18 earlier this morning. While we think about the sovereignty of God, Mr. Arminian, do you appreciate the fact that God describes himself as a potter? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Is that what the Bible says? That is Romans 9 and verse 20. Why do we love those words? I want to be clay in the hands of God. You say, but what if He made you a vessel of dishonor? We sing it. And if my soul were sent to hell, His righteous law approves it well. They've never even heard of such songs. Do you appreciate the fact that God likens Himself to a potter? He does it in Romans 9. He does it in Romans, he does it in Isaiah 29. He does it in Isaiah 45, which I read to you earlier today. He does it in Isaiah 64. And he does it in Jeremiah 18. He likes the idea that he's the potter and we're the clay. Do you like it, my Arminian friend? Look at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 16 is concluding. A parable given by the Lord Jesus Christ about the kingdom of heaven. He starts out, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder and went out and hired some day laborers. And he agreed with the first batch of day laborers for a penny for the entire day, and he sent them into his vineyard. That's all in verse 2. I can't, I'm not going to refer to it all. You know it. He hires some more at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And they all come in for pay at the end of the day because they're day laborers. And this householder is keeping the word of God. You don't hold back a day laborer's wages from him. Because he sets his heart on them. Have you ever done that? When you were a youth and you were working for cash at the end of the day, were you measuring what you were going to get paid as you went through the... Isn't that... You were setting your heart on it. I love the Bible. All I have to do is read that verse and think back to all those times that I was adding it up. Okay, I've been working two hours now. That's a total of such and such. I can do this. I can do that. That's after my dad takes 90% for savings in the Lord. All that's in the Word of God. I love the Bible. Listen, brethren, I hope you're all reading it, and I hope you're all reading it with fascination. I hope you're all reading it like Brother Newell 
describe David reading it from Psalm 119. I, read anywhere you want. I have, my favorite chapter so far this year, Leviticus chapter 25. I, I'm sorry. I, I was wild in my house with Leviticus 25. It's just got so many neat principles of Christian ethics in it. But you may have a different chapter. And you may have a different chapter tomorrow than you had yesterday. Because that's the Word of God. It's inexhaustible. Love it. Read it. Delight in it. In Matthew chapter 20, you know, as the, as the pennies were doled out at the end of the day, those that worked 12 hours through the entire heat of the day didn't think it was fair that those that started at 5 o'clock got a penny as well, though those that had worked 12 hours happily agreed for a penny a day at the beginning of the day, didn't they? Right. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Mr. Arminian, do you believe that? That it is lawful for God to do what He will with His own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? See the questions? This is what I'm doing with you. The Arminian says, God is not good not to give everyone a chance. God did give everyone a chance in a perfect man in Eden. The Arminian says, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. We say, we can't believe in a God, we just rejoice in Him, that would take anyone to heaven. Because none of us belong in heaven. And that's what this verse is saying. Is thine eye evil? Mr. Arminian, do you think God is evil because He's good in loving Jacob? He should hate Jacob along with Esau. Why does it bother you? We rejoice that He is so good to love Jacob. You know, when you look at the lives of those two young men while they were still at home, which was the better man? Verse 16, so the last shall be first. Mr. Arminian, do you understand that? Who shall be last? The first. Who shall be first? The last. Is that God's sovereignty? So men that thought they should be first end up last, and men who thought they were last end up first. You know what this is describing? Your conversion as a Gentile over the Jews. See, the Jews had the whole heat of the day, they thought. They had agreed, and they were very thankful when they came out of Egypt that they had a God that drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And along come the Gentiles in the latter stages of the world history, and the Lord Jesus Christ sends His gospel to them, and so the first become last, and the last become first. For many be called, but few chosen. That's the sovereignty of God. Do you believe that? We do believe that, and we love that, and we're thankful for that. You know, you've you've got to ask an Arminian this question about the human heart, and this is just a short list. Can God open, close, incline, harden, inform, change, or turn hearts as He chooses? Oh, yes, He does. Throughout the pages of Scripture, can He harden the heart of Pharaoh? Can He open the heart of Lydia? Who made the difference, Pharaoh or Lydia? God did. Our God did. The sovereign God of the Bible did. Can he harden the heart of Sihon, king of the Amorites, that he will come against Israel in battle when he knows that it's nearly hopeless? Yes. And the purpose being for the Lord to destroy him. Can God relax the hearts of men three times a year while the Israelites would go worship in the place that God had chosen so that they would have no desire for that property? 
even though there were only wives and children protecting it. Is he the God of the human heart? See, we're asking Mr. Arminian, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God, then you know that God is sovereign over the human heart. That's what they think is inviolate. You can't violate the human heart. Well, if God didn't, doesn't violate the human heart, then none of us would ever fear him. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that understandeth. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. If God didn't put it in our hearts to seek Him, we would never seek Him. There would be none saved if it wasn't for God being sovereign. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I believe some of you young people heard some testimonies by some of your chaperones that God does work in hearts. He worked in my heart, let me tell you. You've heard smatterings of my testimony from time to time. But I thank God for Him turning my heart. He turned my heart a long way. He, how far did He turn my heart? He turned my heart 180 degrees. I wasn't just 175 going away from the things of God. I was 180 degrees going away from them, and He turned me 180 degrees. And if there's any degree left, I wanted to turn me that today. Amen. Are any of you with me in that matter? Right. If there's any degree left that I'm off dead center, I'm seeking Him with my whole heart, my whole life. Turn me. Turn me. Says the church of God in the book of Jeremiah, and I shall be turned. Amen. Do you know what the Arminian says? If that music would have been a little bit better, I'd have turned myself. You know, if we'd have played amazing, if we'd have played just as I am one more time on the organ, as if we were at a funeral, we might have got one more decision for Jesus. Paul and I used to sit there as boys and count. We'd be looking down the pew at each other. You know, our record was 15 times they did just as I am after each one. After each one, the preacher said, this is the last time. It's like when you have a vacuum cleaner salesman in your house. This is the last time, and then he lowers the price by 10%. This is the last offer, and I've got to leave. Then he lowers it by 10%. Have you ever been, ever been with a used car salesman? Let me go in. I've got to check with my boss one more time. Every time he comes out, he's lowered the price in the car a few hundred more dollars. My record in doing that is with my son, Philip. He saw a $5,000 change on a total purchase transaction of only 15000 It took me one hour for a lesson for Philip. This is like the Arminian preacher. One more time. One more time. But no. The true church of God says, Turn me, and I shall be turned. And that's what we look for. We look for God turning men. And God does turn men. Look at how He turned Saul of Tarsus. Is that 180 degrees? On the road to Damascus with authority from the chief priest to get any of that way, the true way of God, and put them into prison. And he ends up going into Damascus, and as soon as he was strengthened after fasting three days, he went into the synagogue and preached that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. Is that being turned? Yep. What made him cry out, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? There was no organ. There was no soul winner. There was nothing but God operating right. on him. When the Lord regenerates, and then powerfully converts us, there's no less power demonstrated in our lives and in the life of Saul of Tarsus. That's right. Mr. Arminian, do you like Proverbs 16.4 where it says, The Lord hath made all things for himself? 
Well, that doesn't say what you're thinking that it says about the wicked. Well, let me read the rest of the verse. Even the wicked for the day of evil? That's Proverbs 16.4. Do you believe and love that God, Mr. Arminian? We want you to love that God. Let us help you love that God. That is the God of the Bible. Mr. Arminian, relative to the sovereignty of God, can a lazy pastor or a lazy missionary cost a soul their salvation? I want to turn you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, Mr. Arminian, to help you out with the Bible answer for your question. This is how you should answer. You probably don't know this verse. It is a 16, but it's got a 4 in front of it, and it's 1 Timothy instead of John with a 3 in front of it. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Paul tells Timothy, a minister, a pastor, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Mr. Arminian, is it possible for a lazy pastor or a lazy missionary to cost a soul their salvation? He would have to say yes because this text says yes. It's just that we happen to understand this text and what salvation is under consideration here. But you know what? A lazy pastor or a lazy missionary in their scheme sends souls to hell. Right. If yes, Mr. Arminian, if yes, that a lazy pastor or a lazy missionary can cost a soul their salvation, are you telling me that a lazy saved man can completely undo God's will for an unsaved man? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that the soul winner responsible for my soul was never lazy. He said it is my meat to do the will of God and to finish His work. The Lord Jesus Christ never laid down on the job except when He laid His body down in the tomb and then rose again from the dead. Mr. Armenian, is it ever right to say God has done all He can do, now the rest is up to you? How many have ever heard that in an invitation? God has done all He can do. Now the rest is up to you. Isn't that something? How can you ever say or declare that you believe the sovereignty of God in any sense of the word if you could ever let words like that come out of your mouth? In your scheme, Mr. Arminian, hearing and believing the gospel is necessary to go to heaven. Is God fair or is God sovereign in keeping the gospel from most men that have lived on the earth in its 6,000 year history? Let's think about the love of God. I thank God for His love for us, and we sing it like we believe it in this church. When we sing about trees being our quills and the ink being our inkwell and uh, the skies being our parchments and uh, that size of a quill and that amount of ink and that size of parchment wouldn't be enough. To write about the love of God, I hope we mean that when we say that. I hope we understand what we mean when we say that. Because the love of God is distinguishing, and the love of God is saving. And the love of God, the Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore. They love the first half. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. There's a consequence to His love. His love does something. His love results in something. His love saves. And we're thankful for that. Arminians say that God loves every single conceived human being with unconditional love. They love that expression, 
unconditional love. The reason they like that is they can live any way they want to and God still has to love them because they're human. God loves every single conceived human being with unconditional love, so much so that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die a substitutionary death for every single one of them. That's what they believe. Mr. Arminian, is it fair to say that God's unconditional love of every single human without exception or variation is the foundation of your theology and the most important thing to know about God and salvation? Do you know what he'll say? Yes. And if he doesn't say it, he's lying. That's the most important thing to them. It is not the holiness of God. It is not the righteousness of God. It is not the independence of God. They care little for those things. All they care about is the love of God, and they don't understand that. That is a bankrupt theology. And our fathers fought against it. And our fathers stood against it. And our fathers despised it. And our fathers preached sermons about the hatred of God. Lord, help us. Mr. Arminian, how can God love a sinner outside Christ? Since the Bible says He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Habakkuk 1.13 How can He love a sinner outside of Christ when He's of purer eyes than to behold Now, if it says he does not behold, and we know that he beholds everything, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, what does it mean? Beholding with approval, beholding with favor, beholding with affection. He does not. Will you share with us from the Bible, please, sir, where God said that he hates the sin but loves the sinner? Would you show us where God separates the sin from the person perpetrating the sin? We can't find the difference in the Bible. We find that sin is the exercise of the will of a man against the law of God. So how can you separate the two? Sin is the consequence of a man choosing to hate and rebel against God. How can you separate and say he hates the sin but he loves the sinner? The sinner is nothing but a cesspool spewing out sin. There isn't anything unsinful about a sinner. So what part of him is he loving? And if you say that he only loves those that are going to give themselves to Jesus, then he hates 95% of mankind. It's just on and on it goes. It would never end. Because a lie can never be solved with reasoning. It's confusion. And they are at the Tower of Babel when it comes to salvation. I have taught you repeatedly that only 5% of the Christian world understands baptism correctly. And I have done that for a reason beyond baptism. I have done that for it to help you when you run into good Arminians, just like there are good baby sprinklers. Are there good Presbyterians? Are there good Lutherans? Are there... Yeah. When you run into them, for you to remember that 95% of the Christian world can't figure out baptism. The vast majority of those 95% believe that baptism regenerates. That baptism saves. And so once you realize that, wow, the devil has been very successful in corrupting the true religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have given you that sound, that I've given you that fact and that reasoning many times over several decades so that when we come to Arminian salvation and you respect someone that's holding to that Arminian scheme of salvation, you will remember that men like Jonathan Edwards, whom I respect historically speaking 
quite a bit, was a baby sprinkling heretic. Right. That doesn't mean he went to hell. It just means he didn't understand baptism. They understood that that baptism put a child into the covenant of grace. That's incredible heresy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's to help you. And so when I say these things, I want you to remember that, that men can be wrong and they have always been wrong. How many did, did Noah persuade by his preaching in the 120 years before the flood came? Not one. How many did Jesus Christ have waiting for the power that was to be given them from on high in the city of Jerusalem after his resurrection and ascension into heaven? 120. How many did Elijah have in his day and he didn't know a single one of them? 7,000 out of several million. And he didn't know any of them because they were closet Christians, meaning that they were keeping their mouths shut in public to save their lives, which is exactly what the Bible teaches the righteous do under an ungodly regime. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Mr. Arminian, please consider, does God send sin or sinners to hell? Revelation 21 and verse 8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Mr. Arminian, notice it doesn't say, but fear and unbelief and abominations and murder and whoredom and sorcery and idolatry and so forth will be cast in the lake of fire, but those criminals that committed those crimes. God doesn't separate the two. Does he hate the sin or the sinners or both? He hates both. I'm a testimony of God's word, and it's God's hatred of sin and sinners that gives all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ who came and stood between us in the hatred of God for our sins and for us as sinners. That is the second Adam. That gives the Lord Jesus Christ some preeminence. That gives the Lord Jesus Christ death on the cross, a stopgap, final, complete, finished work of redemption for us. Thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, for sending your Son. Mr. Arminian, how can you say God loves sinners unconditionally since He will torture every single one in fire for eternity if they do not fulfill the conditions He requires to go to heaven when they die? Or has unconditional love just become a soundbite to you that you don't even know what it means? What does it mean to love someone unconditionally? They don't have to do anything for my love. I will love them no matter what they do. They say that about God's love for sinners. If that is true, then why does God send the vast majority of those that He loves unconditionally to an eternity in hellfire torture because they didn't fulfill the conditions that He gave them? How do we understand any of that? The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions laid upon Him for us. Praise His glorious name. God doesn't love us unconditionally. God loves us conditionally, but the condition has been paid twice over by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 40 says, Comfort ye my people, because she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God doesn't love unconditionally. How could God love a sinner unconditionally? He couldn't. 
It's contrary to his nature. I spent about 50 sermons trying to preach that to you in different ways. He loves us conditionally through the Lord Jesus Christ, but he satisfied the condition by sending his own son to die in our place. That is glorious love. Wonderful love. Thank you, God, for loving us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know how many times the Apostle Paul ends some of his doctrinal arguments and he'll just say, but I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord because there is nothing else to say but to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Is it true that Arminian doctrine of salvation declares and demands that God loves those in heaven and hell equally? There's no way around it. It's a horrible consequence to their ridiculous doctrine. There's so many questions. You know, we could generate a hundred questions just from that one thought. How often do those in hell sing the song of the redeemed? How do they thank God for His love toward them? How do they feel it each day? How is it expressed to them? How do they understand it? How often does God remind them of His love for them in the lake of fire? We could go on and on, but it's not necessary to go on and on because it is so absurd and it's so blasphemous to think of such a ridiculous thought that God set His love on a man and then tortures him for eternity in hellfire. Because that man didn't love him back the way he wanted to be loved. And so he sends him to hell. You say, you're making it sound so absolutely terrible. terrible. It sounds like it's a caricature of the Arminians. No, it's not. It's just their doctrine taken to its logical conclusion, which they don't ever want to deal with. All they want to deal with is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They don't know why God gave. They don't know what God gave to Jesus Christ. I hope you picked that up in John 10 last night. They don't know what the world means. and They don't know anything about the love of God. They don't know that belief is an evidence of eternal life, not a condition for it. They don't believe, they don't understand that it doesn't say whosoever will in that verse, though they love the combination of words whosoever will, though whosoever will is not in John 3.16. And on and on we could go. Look at Psalm 5.5. We stand on the word of God with our doctrine, and they can hate us, but like we had read to us from Psalm 119 today, they can reproach us, they can pick on us, they can take pot shots at us, They can despise us and we'll meditate in God's words. Princes can speak against us. They can torture us. They can burn us at the stake. And they in the Council of Trent can declare an anathema against us if we deny the free will of man and we will still believe what we believe from the Bible. Psalm 5.5 The foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Do you think the word abhor means a little less love? How about Psalm 11 and verse 5? The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup. The Lord will pour out one kind of a cup, to the wicked, and he will pour out a different cup to the righteous. And who made the difference between the wicked and the righteous? The Lord God himself. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at Psalm 7 and verse 11. Psalm 7, 11, God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Look at the difference between the righteous and the wicked. 
God judgeth the one in fairness, chastising them and bringing them back into the way of righteousness. And he's angry with the wicked every day. Is this how he expresses his love? He is angry with them every day? And on and on we could go. The questions would never end. And they hardly end here in my pulpit. Look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. This used to be preached. The hatred of God. God hates sinners apart from Jesus Christ. You know, Arminians don't even preach that God hates the devil. If he loves him, he has a strange way of showing it. He has him reserved for torment, and he knows it. Psalm 139, verse 21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? This is David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, speaking. Psalm 139, verse 21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Mr. Arminian, we we must ask you, did David's hatred of God's enemies please God or offend him? This isn't the only place it's mentioned by David either. When the prophet came and met Jehoshaphat after the marriage of his son to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, did he commend Jehoshaphat for loving the enemies of the Lord or rebuke him and say that it was sin in his life? He rebuked him and called it sin. How can you demand, Mr. Arminian, an extreme definition of the word world in John 3.16, but compromise hatred to mean a little less love? That when the Bible says God hated Esau but loved Jacob, it just means that he loved Esau a little bit less than he loved Jacob. How can you do that with language, but then extend the word world in John 3.16 to a bizarre definition not used in the Bible? In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 through 8, it says that God chastens whom he loves. But then he says some are bastards. Mr. Arminian, does God love the bastards? Everyone that is a child of God, God chastens them to prove His love. And He reasons from that to us. If we love our children, we will chasten them to make them better in the sight of God and men. If a man doesn't chasten his son, then he's ashamed of that person, and he's a bastard child, and he's not really a child of God. The bastard word is in the Bible. It's God's choice of words for the wicked. Mr. Arminian, does God love the bastards? The Bible tells us plainly that he doesn't. He only loves those he chastens, and he chastens all that he loves, and there's not one more, not one less. And either side of that equation, and the bastards never get out of their equation. If Jesus is going to tell sinners that he never knew them, does it mean he loves them without knowledge? What does it mean? It means that he never knew them. He never loved them. He never had a relationship with them. They were never his. God the Father had never given them to him. God the Father had never given him to them. They were not made accepted in the beloved. They were not chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him in love. You know, as we ask these questions, if you're thinking about them rightly, you're thinking of the answers that we have. And God's love is very particular. It's very special. It is deep. It is effectual. It accomplishes its purpose and it's glorious. Their love they make so wide that it is so shallow it doesn't accomplish a thing and it is inglorious, it's blasphemous. 
to think that God would set his love on persons, the vast majority of which he tortures for eternity. You say, well, why does God torture anyone? Because in the Garden of Eden, we all had a perfect chance in our father, Adam. Mm -hmm. Just like he's going to torture the devil and his angels, and I never hear Arminians, nor do I ever get any questions feeling sorry for the devil and his angels. But why does everyone want to feel sorry about wicked men who are lower in glory and power than the angels? You know I mention that to you so many times because I want to point out that it is not care for the righteous character of God. It is selfishness in valuing themselves above the devil and his angels. And the Bible tells us that we are below the devil and his angels. They are greater in power and might than we are, and yet there was no redeemer supplied for them whatsoever any of them. But God in election did preserve some of the angels in their original holiness, and thus they are called elect and holy angels. And God put us in Christ Jesus so that he could elect us unto holiness so that we would be his elect and holy saints forever. For he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. If hell is separation from God, Mr. Arminian, does God still love those he will separate and send to hell? Romans 8.38, we love it. For I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things, present things, come height, depth, any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love those verses. If God loves everyone, then those verses, Romans 8, 38 and 39, apply to everyone. Since God is going to send the vast majority of the human race to an eternal hell, and they're going to be separated from him forever, this really works with Arminians, because do you know how Arminians define hell? Separation from God. That's how they define hell, separation from God. Therefore, he is going to separate the vast majority of the human race from him, and yet they say he loves them, but the Bible says that if he loves them, you can never be separated from his love. Hello? I want the love of God to never be separated from me. I know that I do enough that he could, he should separate from me, but the word of God tells me, I'll never be separated from his love, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Therefore, I can rest in his love. And do we sing that? Resting in his love. Yes, we do, because we can rest in it. Mr. Arminian, should men love all women since they are to love them as Christ loved the church? Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Oh, so many questions can come from this one. Are all in the church, Mr. Arminian? If yes, we'll all be in heaven. If no, does God love those outside the church? If I love, like Christ loved the church, but your Jesus loves everyone, then I should love all women, including my wife. That's absurd. What motivation is there to love your wife and to give yourself for for her, to purify and to cleanse her and to present to yourself a glorious wife if... God did that for everyone, and most of them are absolute wretches. Do you follow me? The love of God is particular. It is special. Do you know why our fathers were called particular Baptists? Because God had a particular people, and he died a particular death. He sent Jesus Christ to die a particular death for them. Oh, there's so many more things that can be said. I'm serious. There are so many more that can be said. How many times in the book of Acts did the apostles declare or offer God's love to sinners? I've taught you this many times, 
There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. The full title of the book of Acts is The Acts of the Apostles. Is evangelism and the history of evangelism best depicted in the book of Acts? How many times was the gospel in a nutshell quoted? None. There's 13 variations of the word love in English used in the New Testament. How many of those made it into the book of Acts? None. Why didn't Paul stand on Mars Hill and, told, and tell those beloved philosophers, the, the ones deeply loved of God, that God loved them and had a wonderful plan for their lives? I want to tell you something. Paul did tell them about the wonderful plan God had for their lives. But do you know what that wonderful plan was as he drew to a conclusion? God's raised Jesus Christ from the dead to give you sufficient evidence that he's coming back to destroy you. Because God hath appointed by this one man to judge the world. That should be overwhelming to an Arminian. That in the book of Acts, the word love is not used in any context, anywhere, about God toward men of any kind. That is not gospel preaching to go around and offer the love of God to anyone. Gospel preaching is to say, repent! And believe on the Son of God! Repent and believe. And when they repent and when they believe, then you can tell them what God has done for them to bring them to that place. With so many venues in the book of Acts, why is there complete silence and disregard for the love of God? Amazing. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth. Amen. We thank you for your love, but it's not bandied about. We're not supposed to stick up placards in football end zones. We're supposed to preach the gospel, and those that bring forth the fruit can know that God loves them. If you're of, lo if you're of love and you love your brethren, then you know that God loved you first. If you're righteous and doing righteousness, 1 John chapters 3 and 4, then you know that you are righteous because He is righteous and He's made you righteous. If you believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, it's because that faith was born again in you by the God that loved you. And we love Him because He first loved us. But most don't love Him, so did God love them first? And on and on we could go. Oh Lord, thank You. How could Christ's love for those in hell pass knowledge to fill us with all the fullness of God? In Ephesians chapter 3. Is love related to compassion or mercy? Well, in Romans chapter 9, the compassion and mercy described there is according to His will. I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy and whom I will have compassion. If God loves all men indiscriminately and equally, how does He express it to them in hellfire? Who did God love in the Old Testament, Mr. Arminian? Three quarters of your Bible is made up of the Old Testament, Mr. Arminian. Who did God love in the Old Testament? If you say more than Israel, other than the exception stated, how did God show His love to them? Think flood. Think plagues of Egypt. Think annihilation of seven nations in the land of Canaan. Man, woman, and child. Part of your reading this week might have been about the Israelites taking on the Midianites. And coming back from that battle, having saved the children and the women. And Moses was wroth. W-R-O-T-H. Wroth. 
Why? Because they were supposed to have killed them all. So what did they have to do right there with prisoners inside a roped-off area, numbering in the many thousands? Slaughter all the boys and throw the women down on the ground and find out who was a virgin if she wasn't killer on the spot. Go read it. I'm sorry if you don't like that God. I love him. Those abominable Canaanites, you just need to read a little bit about their bestiality and their sodomy and their child sacrifice and you wouldn't feel so sorry for them. You've been warped by the thinking of this sick country. Trust the Bible. Trust God that he did what was righteous. And if it wasn't for the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, we all belong there. How can you call that loving them? How did God love the Canaanites in the Old Testament, Mr. Arminian? Are you saying that God loved those in Canaan as much as He loved those that He sent into Canaan to annihilate them? He took away from them their houses. He took away from them their wells, their vineyards, and everything they had to give them to their murderers. They weren't murdering. They were doing the work of God of evangelizing, of getting rid of a bunch of false doctrines, blasphemous doctrines. Do you know what the the Lord said about that? If I don't send Israel in to do this, the land itself is going to spew them out and vomit them out. That is a holy God that hates sin and sinners. There's so much more that could be said. They would say, I don't understand how God could hate Esau. And we would say, and I've said this so many times because it is so sweet to my ears. And I remember when I first heard it. I do not understand why God loved Jacob. You turn them to Luke chapter 1 and verse 2. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You should ask Mr. Arminian, what do the words all the world mean in Luke 1-2? Since it's not just the word world... And it's not just the word all, but it's the words all the world. What does it mean? Out of the earth's population from Adam to today, what percentage were included in those words all the world? Not even 1%. Not even one-tenth of 1%. Because all that was, was the tax-paying Roman world. Japanese didn't pay much that year. (laughs) Caesar Augustus didn't even know where their island was. And so forth and so on. We can go through the Bible and show them. Isn't it amazing that you can show them a limited world, but when it comes to John 3.16, they have set all their hope upon one verse. And how many have a false hope of the God of the Bible and a false hope of salvation and a false method for evangelism based on one verse instead of reading the whole? Lord, we thank you and we bless you and we praise you. Our, Our understanding of God's love is great by its depth, its effectualness, and its permanence. They call God's love, their the love of their God great, but it's great in width, meaning that it reaches none to save them by itself. It's ineffectual and it's temporary because most will be separated from it. Our understanding of the love of God is great because of its depth. It reaches all the way to sinners and saves them effectually and they shall never be separated from it. Lord, we thank you that your word and your doctrine is reasonable. It is consistent. 
And we are to bring our strong reasons and our questions to Thee and let the Word of God answer them. We thank You for saving us. And we thank You that any understanding of Your Word that we have is by grace as well. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.